Hello and welcome to the Cinementalist podcast for Cinementalist.com. My name's Andy and sitting across from me is Liam. Liam, how's it going, dude? Uh, I feel silly, really. The pubs have been open again for nearly a week and I haven't even gone for a pint. You know what? Me neither. <laughs> I think I'm actually going to leave it a little while longer, to be fair. Even though I've been whinging and moaning on here a couple of times, I don't actually feel that comfortable. <laughs> the real question is, is this paranoia or are we just old? Uh, maybe a little bit of both. Have we outgrown pubs? It would save us a hell of a lot if we have. <laughs> what might be, you know, might nurse the old wallets a little bit, but maybe next month, couple of months, I'm not actually in a rush to get back there. No, no. Which no, is no, good, either. which I'm glad about, really. You know? Done too much of it. There's holes in my liver to attest. Oh, yeah, you and me both, mate. <laughs> oh, and of course, introducing uh, Floki the Dragon as well, who has uh, just eaten a load of uh, very large phoenix worms and taken a gigantic shit in his enclosure right before recording. So thank you very much for that, Floki. Brand new, lovely, uncommunicative mascot. Yeah. <laughs> He'll do a review one of these days. He still hasn't seen a film. <laughs> Time to break him in yet? Yeah. Uh, yeah, starting <laughs> off with a little bit of film news this week, a little bit of sad film news, of course. Uh, Ennio Morricone died this week. Yeah, I know. I know. What a great loss that was for the film community. Uh, if you are unaware, and I can't imagine there are many of you who are, Ennio Morricone, famous uh, film soundtrack creator, uh, most famous, of course, for the Good, the Bad and the Ugly theme. Uh, yeah, that absolute Sorry. iconic piece of music. <clears throat> and so much more as well. I was looking at his uh, IMDb page before we started. Uh, you have to actually have to do a hell of a lot of scrolling just to get through how many credits. My um, my favourite film score of Morricone's is uh, the one he did for Once Upon a Time in America. Yeah, 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 yeah. fantastic. And that's score. just picked. That's a pick out of uh, you know just a fucking slew of brilliance. And as we found out on one of our premium podcasts recently as well, I didn't know this until we did the trivia for it. Uh, we did a John Carpenter special, and he did the soundtrack to The Thing. Yeah. Which is mad, because that sounds, I would say that's the most John Carpenter-sounding soundtrack. I was deeply ashamed of myself for not actually picking up on that before. Well, my, that might be a, my favourite bit of trivia that we've done so far, actually, because he was deliberately aping John Carpenter's style. Yeah. And he did it so well, it sounded more like John Carpenter than John Carpenter, which is absolutely incredible. So yeah, sad loss to the film community, that one, but oh my God, what a, a huge body of work. I mean, just looking through his IMDb stuff here, I think you could get a pretty good background, I mean, a huge background, actually, in Italian cinema. Yeah. Just by going through the stuff that Ennio Morricone scored. Oh, absolutely. It's a ridiculous yeah. amount. I'm just scrolling it. You just have to keep going and going and going and going. I mean, in 1972 alone, let me count these for a second. So in 1972 alone, he did... Oh, there's too many to count. I'd say there's a good 30 films that he scored in 1972. I know, I know that, you know, a lot of people go nuts for, you know, and I'm not trying to knock John Williams necessarily, but, I mean, for me, Ennio Morricone, when it comes to film composers, he is the, I'd say for me, he is the apex. He was just, you know, his stuff was just uh, second to absolutely nothing. He's just an amazing musician, you know. I was trying to find some good quotes and interviews with him earlier, and uh, quite a quiet man by the look of it. Didn't mm. give a lot of interviews. Which yeah, I can't respect. Kind of guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Extremely <clears> old school. And yeah, well, what a huge loss. So do yourself a favour. If you haven't watched it in a long while, or perhaps, you know, younger audience, perhaps you might never have seen it before. <clears> uh, stick on the good, the bad and the ugly and revel in the amazing score. And amazing film, of course. Uh, well, I mean, all, all, all of the uh, Dollars trilogy, but especially that one. Yeah. Yeah, for absolute certain. Okie dokie then. Well, we'd better crack on with the reviews. Uh, Liam, as usual, you got a couple this week. And as usual, I will leave it up to you as to what goes first. 
Yeah, so uh, director Rod Lurie, who famously did uh, The Contender, which was a great um, political drama with uh, Jeff Bridges, Joan Allen, and Gary Oldman, and uh, famously The Last Castle, which is a great bit of popcorn fun with Robert Redford and Mr. Gandolfini. He has released The Outpost, brand new uh, war drama centred around the Battle of Camdesh which is a major skirmish that took place in October 2009 between men of the 61st Cavalry Regiment of the U.S. Army and the Taliban insurgency in the small town of Kandesh in the Nuristan province at the Combat Outpost Keating, which is the titular outpost, which was situated at the bottom of a great big fuck-off horrendous valley, something that the men were extraordinarily worried about. Named, of course, after Ronan Keating. Yes, Ronan. Yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah. You saw that trivia as well. I did, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, you know, they know how to pick them. The old US <laughs> army, didn't they? He's visited as a plaque. <clears throat> yes. You know, an unveiling ceremony, cut a ribbon. Yeah, the Af- you know, Afghanis, they just love those, you know, Irish pop stars. Yeah. yeah, so it's situated at the bottom of an enormous valley and there's about 50 or 60 of these infantrymen at hand. The station is there to stop the Taliban moving weapons um, through to like, across the Indian subcontinent to make it easier, you know, which would make it easier for them to, you know, fuel their international jihad, if you like. The station is announced by Top Brass is going to be shut down that year. So the men decide, okay, well, we've got a few more months to wait here. It's going to fucking suck, but we can find things to pass the time. There's enough of us. We'll mess, you know, we'll keep a Hawkeye, but we'll fuck around. You know, we'll just, everything will be fine. But uh, the Taliban find out about this. They find out this specific station is going to be closed down. So they decide to make a statement. So in a modern day Rourke's Rift, these 50 or 60 American soldiers are faced down by 400 members of the Taliban and are left with no choice but to hold the fort or the outpost against them. And it, I, I thought it was excellent. Totally. Even, even with Orlando Bloom? Do you know what? I mentioned in the film blog, in my written review, I mentioned this is the one performance of Orlando Bland. Sorry again, Mark. I'll put a pound in the jar. Yeah, we, we, we owe you. Don't worry, it is coming. The check's coming. <laughs> this is the only performance of his where I didn't go and roll my eyes. He sold it. He was actually good. No way. No, no, genuinely. Because I... I remember sitting there and I looked at his face and I said, that's not, is that, no, that's not Orlando Bloom. He's like, no, it fucking is Orlando Bloom. He was genuinely good. Hand on heart, he was genuinely good. But the the hats have got to come off with Scott Eastwood, who is the central character essentially as uh, Clint Romesha, real life guy. So he's he's playing a character named Clint? Yes, he's playing a character named Clint. And he's Clint Eastwood's son. And he's Clint Eastwood's son, yeah. Clint, okay. Clinton Romesha is his name. So, yeah. but this is based on a real story. So this is there, really, yeah, this all really happened. So, there was a real guy named Clinton. There was a real guy named Clinton okay. Romesha, yeah. Otherwise, oh, the, otherwise way yeah. too on the nose. No, no, <laughs> the, yeah, this, no, this is all fact. Uh, Scott Eastwood has Clinton Romesha. Really, really great performance. I mean, it is, watching it the whole time, it is as if they got Clint from the 1960s, brought him back to the present day and shrunk him down a little bit <laughs> because he's nowhere near as tall as his old man. Very few people are. And as I, I think I mentioned to you offhand the other day, the similarity in mannerisms are eerie. But Scott Eastwood is a very, very staunch performer in his own right. He's, he is a very talented guy, and he is the absolute nuts in his role. Very, very good screen presence, very good charisma, very authentic 
sort of leadership ability that he communicates in the film. Him and Caleb Landry Jones, who is another uh, favourite actor of mine, uh, he's been absolutely outstanding in a lot of bit parts that he's been in, but most he's one of those, oh, it's that guy people. He also stars as a specialist, Ty Carter, who was actually, they were both awarded the uh, Medal of Honour, uh, Ty Carter and Romesha, because they did, they, they ultimately survived this battle. They took some cues from real life colleagues who remember them, but they were, they also injected it with a little bit of cinematic sensibility, not in a way that comes across as too overdone, but Scott Eastwood is the kind of cool, taciturn, level-headed staff sergeant, and Romesha was reputedly a guy of much sang-froid and sharp sense of humour, kept himself very collected. Ty Carter, on the other hand, he still, to this day, gives uh, talks about PTSD, and it's very clear in the film through Caleb Landry Jones' performance that this guy is afflicted with that to the noise. Very unstable, very unpredictable, but in a very, very sympathetic way. Really, really powerful, robust performances all across the board. And yeah, I'm sorry, I know you don't believe me, even from Orlando Bloom. The only thing I've seen Orlando <laughs> Bloom do recently is turn up in like gossip pages for. Is he, I know, yeah, is I he know. married to Katy Perry now, I think. Uh, you would probably know better than me on that score. <laughs> somehow improved his acting ability. What's going on? I here? don't know. It's weird, but no, I've, like yourself, I have never. I've always been at best ambivalent about the guy, but I, I thought he was. I thought he sold it. I thought he gave a solid performance, and this film totally shot out. You know, it uh, was reminded of Black Hawk Down. Lots of really great, you know, solidly paced war films. It does what it needs to do. There's no bloody rousing speeches. I thought it was a, re- a really terrific, immersive war film. I was at no point, you know, it wasn't an instance where I thought, oh, that didn't work. Because there's been instances where directors try to really capture the nightmarish experience of being on a battlefield. And I know it works in Shakespeare and stuff like that, you know, because obviously that's in that's the, the aesthetic that's... Once more it's the breach, dear friends, once yeah. more. Yeah. Usually, you know, standing around fucking about, giving lots of... You know, I suppose, you know, you can have maybe a little you know, several minute pep talk that's going to be very adrenaline rushed, standing on top of the fucking, you know, uh, <laughs> some sort of box while a Spielberg score, score looms in. All I'm thinking right now is Independence Day. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. the whole fourth of <clears throat> speech, which even worse, War Horse. Oh, yeah. Yeah, 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 for sure. <laughs> Men, I can't promise you this will be easy. Uh, what I can promise you is, and et cetera, et cetera. It's such an old trope, that, isn't it? Yeah, that doesn't occur at all. There are, there, it, it, that's the thing, the, at the outpost, has that feeling of, you know, what white knuckle immersive authenticity. You know, there's there's obviously a dramatic exchange between the characters, but it's yeah, there's none of that Hollywoodized. Does anybody shout "ura" at any point? Uh, no. Wow. No. It really is breaking the mold then. This no. Way. Another thing that I mentioned, right? We got accused of being. Another typical American, you know, typical story of American heroism, but it's not. It's not like that kind of jingoistic claptrap that American Sniper was, which I know, incidentally, is directed by old Clint. Yeah, but no, it, I didn't get that feeling at all. I, the Taliban are presented as villains. Well, number one, because it's from the point of view of a group of U.S. military personnel who are locked down in a fucking outpost. Mm. So, and the Taliban famously engaging in guerrilla warfare. 
So, you know, faceless villains, it's kind of an axiom. Well, for a yeah. long time it was the Nazis. <clears throat> well, yeah. yeah, for a long time it was the Nazis. It's very difficult to but, put the Taliban in a sympathetic light. It is very difficult to do that. And also, I have genuinely come across uh, at least one review that accused this film of casting all of the Afghan locals, you know, in a villainous light, which is patently not true, because there are sequences where the men of combat outpost Keating conversed with a group of tribal elders who do not like the Taliban, but they're not exactly welcoming the American troops with open arms because it's all it's all an interplay yeah. of violence. So there, this notion that, oh, it's just another film where the Americans are all the good guys and the Afghanis are all the bad guys. No. If you if you find any reviews citing that, they they are being mistruthful. But no, I, I liked it. Very, very, very solid experience. It did exactly what I was hoping. I was actually kind of ambivalent. I thought, I'm not a sucker for war films per se, but I know exactly what I like about a war film that gets it right. Mm. And this film absolutely got it right. As I said, very believable, very good scripting. There's even appropriate moments of levity, you know, of kind of jarhead humour, but very fitting uh, nevertheless. It is really worth a watch this one. While we're here, actually, I'd like to give a shout out to um, Restrepo. Did you ever see Oh, that? yeah, you showed me the documentary. Yeah, Brilliant. Um, yeah. I think it's uh, mid 2000s or uh, yeah. <clears throat> Off the top of my head, 2006, 2007, something like that. Uh, do definitely give that a look. There is a uh, shot again in uh, Afghanistan in one of the most um, contentious points that was constantly taken by the Americans, taken back by the Taliban, mm. taken back by the Americans. Documentary series uh, following, well, documentary film. I think it's only about an hour and 20 minutes long, something like that. Yeah. But it's the closest <clears throat> to real war that I've seen a documentary get to. I mean, you can literally see the bullets ricochet. Oh, I still remember that, man. That was very, very fucking nerve-wracking. And you've got this uh, wonderful commander as well. I can't remember his name off the top of my head, but he's one of the main focuses of the documentary. And just what a difficult job he has. Yes, yeah. Because he's going in there going, of course, I don't want to kill any civilians. We're trying to interact with the Afghani locals. But the Afghani locals are saying what we already know, which is they're saying it's all very well and good. You want us to help you now. But all that's going to happen is in a couple of months' time, you guys are going to ship out again. The Taliban are going to come back through here. And anybody who worked with the Americans is going to be struck up from the nearest tree. Yeah. yeah. So we want to help you. We know you're on the right side of things. What the fuck do you expect us to do? And this commander's sitting there going, I can completely see their point. Absolutely. It's like, how the hell is... Yeah, I, I totally get it. If I was you, maybe I wouldn't cooperate either. So, and it's just this impossible position these guys are put in. And like I said, it's... Closest thing to war I've ever seen a, a film camera manage to get. Absolutely, other than yeah. a bit of news footage. You know? Yeah, no, I'm no, I'm very grateful to you for showing me that because I, I, I completely agree with you. It had it, it really communicated that very viscerally, and even for I mean for a dramatization, the outpost, I, I believe it does show those two sides very, very sympathetically because to me it's part of the course that the local people who are you know they're not in with the Taliban. But there is going to be some level of apprehension there because you you are one side of a conflict that's occurring in where they live. And yes, you know, they've recognised that you are not as evil as the theocratic regime or arguably not as evil. It depends on perspective, I suppose. I don't want to get too radical as the theocratic regime that has got their, that's had their nation under the thumb for years. But they need to be assured that they can trust you to you know, to look out for their best interests while doing the job, and I think that it does those exchanges in a way that I certainly bought. And it was yeah, it was solid a war film that I've seen in a very long time. Excellent, easily. 
Oh, and we threw a shout out to uh, Black Hawk Down there as well. I believe we discussed this many, many moons ago on one of the podcasts. I, I think that's still a brilliant film. My only problem with Black Hawk Down is it's re-shown on the TV all the time. Thankfully, I haven't... Do you know what? I haven't watched Black Hawk Down all the way through in a number of years. And watching The Outpost has really made me feel like watching it again. It's been... It's oh, been, that's good. So it's got the same sort of feel. For my money, Black Hawk Down is the ultimately the stronger film. It's an iconic film. As Ridley Scott, a hell of a yeah. piece of competition. Absolutely. There, right? Black Hawk Down is a, is a supremely iconic film, and as it bloody well should be. But yeah, in terms of visual aesthetic, in terms of a lot of the camera work, and just in terms of the sheer anxiety, reminded very, very much of the earlier film, definitely. So yeah, it communicates that spirit very well. Excellent. And we've got a second one here. Mm. I haven't seen this either. Uh, Heaven Knows What. Yeah, Heaven Knows What from 2014. I was looking at the Wikipedia before you came over, and this looks very interesting indeed. What's this about? Well, as I've spoken about here in the past, I love the Safdie brothers. Um, I know that you said that you weren't particularly enamoured by Good Time. Only because of Robert Pattinson. (laughs) Fair enough. (laughs) I don't believe you've seen Uncut Gems yet. No, I haven't. Yeah, very well, remiss of me. Yeah, lo- lo- I adore those films very, very much. Heaven Knows What is the Safdie Brothers effort that came out in 2014, three years before Good Time, 2017. And it stars Ariel Holmes as Harley. And she's a young lady living homeless on the streets of New York City. And she's got a debilitating heroin addiction. And this is actually based on Ariel Holmes's unpublished memoir, Mad Love in New York City. So she is playing a fictionalised version of herself alongside actors, many of them amateur actors and genuine New York street people who are playing variants of people she actually knew. And the film depicts events that actually happened to her in her life. Bear in mind that Ariel, Ariel Holmes now is only coming up 27 all of this stuff happened to her when she was in her mid to late teens, like very, uh, you know, well, I mean, not even early 20s because the film came out in 2014 when she would have been 21 and the Safdie brothers actually helped get her into rehab. I was just looking here. Um, I think <clears throat> first experience with crack cocaine was when she smoked with her mother at the age of 12. That's correct, yeah. Wow. Oh, man, this, trust me, this girl's had a hell of a life. Like, I'm talking down in roughest NYC in the parks with all the junkies and the homeless people and all the street punks and the nutters. She was really down there in the nitty gritty, the worst of the worst. And it just, it, yeah, it's just a portrayal of her, you know, her life. You know, it's, it's a few, I suppose it's a few days, maybe in a few weeks in just in the life of, you know, this young woman as she drifts aimlessly looking for her next score I was really heavily reminded of stuff like Panic in Needle Park, Mean Streets. It's got that real kind of... um, New York grit. Yeah, it's got that rough, hewn, gritty, you know, very in-your-face believability about it. And it's got a lot of people who appeared in good time as well. Buddy Duress, who was a brilliant... um, At the time, he was still... He he wasn't a professional actor at the time. And... uh, before heaven knows what, Buddy Duress plays uh, Harley's uh, friend Mike, a fellow addict. And Buddy Duress actually, he himself came from that kind of background uh, before um, they wrapped up the film. 
uh, body duress was actually picked up on the police because uh, unbeknownst to the Safdie brothers during the entire filming of Heaven Knows What, body duress actually had an arrest warrant out for him. Right. So he ended up in Rikers Island just after they wrapped filming and they actually managed to get him out of prison in time for him to appear in good time. And then once good time wrapped up, he got arrested and sent back to prison again. Wow. So, <laughs> so, so there's, there's a lot of meta overlap going oh, on. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. A lot of this is really, you know, there's a lot. there was a lot of DIY filmmaking aspects about this film. And, yeah, it was it's such an incredible experience. It's got the, you know, typical of the Safdies, there's a really great emotive and but all, yet threatening and ominous synthwave score because the, the, often the Safdies have a very deaf use of that particularly in good time and in uncut gems as well, sets the mood really, really beautifully in a very idiosyncratic way. You know, so it's wonderfully strange, sort of elusively strange, I suppose, if you like, but the, the soundtrack choice. Yeah, it's just a really amazing experience. And again, Caleb Landry-Jones, just mentioned him in The Outpost, he plays Harley's boyfriend, uh, Ilya, who we get in reality, Ariel Holmes had a boyfriend in real life called Ilya, who was a fellow addict. And, I mean, her performance is fantastic enough, but, again, the performance of Caleb Landry Jones in Heaven Knows What, because he plays probably one of the most realistic portrayals I've seen of somebody who has been rendered utterly unstable via extreme drug abuse. I mean, this guy, he's obviously humanised. Nobody in this film is an outright villain at all. It's, It's not that sort of picture. But he is a demonstrably very mentally unwell individual and he does a lot of messed up and rather dangerous stuff in it. He's not the easiest guy to warm to. But like Ariel and a lot of the other players, it you know, it humanizes them in a way that isn't patronizing on the nose. It's just it is what it is, because it was what it was. You know, this this stuff really happened to her and she just offered her a slice of her life up to the best of her recollection. And you know, it does it. It's just free of judgment. There's no sentimentalism in it, but there certainly is a, a strain of empathy running through it, strong empathy, but without, it's certainly not in a way that tells the audience where they should feel emotive in any way. It's just really impressive for you know a film before their proper breakthrough stuff. Yeah, and I think that's <clears> such <throat> an interesting and brave thing for a young actress to do, as well to yeah. p- portray something that is absolutely fucked up and really did happen to you. I guess the realism aspect must come from her own experiences. I imagine they consulted her quite a lot. Absolutely. With the the script and the shooting. And this is the thing. The stuff that happened to her, it was hardcore shit, man. And when they were filming this, this, while they were filming this, she was trying to get clean. While they were filming this, she was 20 years old. All of this had happened to her, you know, across the decade before. So, yeah, as you mentioned, the first time she smoked crack was when she was 12. This all this shit happened to her when she was a kid, kid, not just a young woman, a fucking kid, and is that makes it even more frightening to comprehend. Yeah, absolutely. but it's a really, it's a really wonderful piece of work. It's got a great naturalistic feel to it. There are actually uplifting aspects about the film. Something with such grim subject matter. It does sound like it might be a bit of a depressing one. I wouldn't call it depressing. I would call it confrontational. Uh, it, there is definitely some bleakness about it. But I don't think that it's, uh, I wouldn't call it depressing. Um, I would call Requiem for a Dream depressing. That's yeah. my personal opinion. But I would call that film depressing. Do you know what? I didn't actually, uh, unpopular film opinion, I don't like Requiem for a Dream. 
I was not, I quite liked some of the camera work. I thought the camera work was cool. I don't think it's a poorly but, made film. I just, but as a piece of work, yeah, I'm not entirely enamoured with it. I don't, I don't think it's a poorly made film. I, I, my genuine feeling upon the credits rolling on Requiem for a Dream was um, that it was quintessential misery porn. Because yeah. I, I don't recall one iota of levity in that film. And as we've discussed before, I think whatever, whatever kind of film you're making, whatever story you're telling, whatever genre it is, it doesn't matter. If you don't have an ounce of levity in that film, then I don't buy it. Because even in the most dire, miserable as fuck real life situations, people feel still find things to break the strain and make them laugh. Mm-hmm. And I don't recall that ever happening in Requiem for a Dream. So I just thought it was really wallowing in me, in, you know, just mired in misery, essentially. And I like Aronofsky, so there's no disrespect to him. I just wasn't sold by that. But yeah, heaven knows what, as I said, real Panic and Neil Park, real Mean Streets vibe. You know, it rub it rubs your nose in it in as in the reality of it, as opposed to rubbing your nose in, you know, oh good, you know, let this rip your heart out. You know, this must make you feel like shit. Go on, emote, emote. Not that, but it, it does, you know, go, well, take a look at this, man. This is how a lot of people are fucking living and they get ignored. And they're human beings just like everybody else. And it does that with that, you know that solidity that consummateness and um yeah i just i just think it's a really really terrific film and a lot of people there will be people who are following the safties who are definitely familiar with have with heaven knows what but most people would more than likely due to you know the fact that it's was blown up over the internet be familiar with uncut gems and possibly good time much more so than this they're still somewhat on the fringes as well like i guess because they make kind of art house kind of indie pictures yeah it's not a, a commercially um like a big commercial kind of sensibility. That they- no, 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 it's not. You know, this stuff is, you know, A24 company, for example. Yeah, it's very, it is independently made. But as I've said on here before, the Safdie brothers, Joshua and Benjamin, for me, they are two of, if not the two most encouraging filmmakers that are existing and working and making content right now because the films that I have seen by them, I think are fucking outstanding. Let's just talk uh, very quickly as well about uh, colour palette as well. So the Safdies are very famous for sort of, it's that new wave um, retro futuristic aesthetic. Mm. Lots of pinks, lots of blues. I'm just looking at the poster in front of me. And it's all neon pinks, blues, oranges. With her face on it. Yeah, yeah. Is it very much that sort of style throughout the film? Not really. Actually, they, they shot a lot of the film through... Um, uh, they they were... What's the technique? It's when you're at a distance and they um, they, they actually zoomed in on the actors. Right, okay. Uh, yeah. they, they shot from far and zoomed in primarily because they didn't actually have filming permits and they didn't actually have the support of the local authorities. So they they, they essentially filmed the movie surreptitiously. I love that. So it's, it's guerrilla filmmaking. Basically. Yeah, all of the scenes taking place in public in New York City because there are a lot of interior shots where they're, you know, they're inside a character's home. But yeah, the filming that takes place in public is actually, yeah, it's completely uh, guerrilla surreptitious filmmaking. So a lot of it is actually grainy, Daylight NYC, but it's funny you mentioned the poster because it was actually Robert Pattinson seeing the poster of Heaven Knows What. He was so just blown away by that image that that's what made him ring up the Safety Brothers and ask to work with them. Cool. So if he, I mean, if it, so if, it, if it wasn't for Robert Pattinson stumbling upon the poster of Heaven Knows What, Good Time probably wouldn't have even been made. So he was so, but yeah, you, you are right though. They do have, while the film may not be saturated with their, that those kind of visuals, as Good Time 
absolutely is throughout the over the majority of his running time. And there is definitely a bit of that in Uncut Gems. Yeah, heaven knows what is a lot more of a naturalistic, grainy looking, you know, quotidian kind of look to it. But oh, so this is great thing because I mean, Uncut Gems, it's up on Netflix at the moment. So I yeah. think a huge yeah. amount of people have probably seen that at this point. So going backwards through the Safdie Brothers back catalogue, this is uh, definitely one to look out for. Then. 100%. All right, then that brings me on to TV of the week. And as mm. promised last week, I'm going to do Picard. Mm. And I've oh, been, yes, been looking forward to this. Well, I've been procrastinating about Picard, and there's a very good reason for this. I've nerded out many times on this podcast before. <laughs> I've nerded out on medieval history. I've nerded out on sword fighting. I've nerded out on lots of different things. Uh, but one of my biggest pieces of nerdery and something <clears> very <throat> near and dear to my heart is Star Trek, particularly Star Trek The Next Generation, mm. uh, famously starring Patrick Stewart as Jean-Luc Picard and many others. I think just about everyone is aware of Star Trek The Next Generation just because it got played so much, particularly if you're our age, if you're uh, early 30s, late 20s, then that would have been a staple on TV when you were a child. And that was the sort of the version of the Enterprise I grew up with. A lot of people obviously grew up with the original Star Trek and have their love for um, William Shatner and his excellent line delivery, <laughs> where everything... God! pauses, <laughs> But kind of brilliant in its own way. But yeah, the next generation is very close to my heart. And I, I think I'm not alone in this as well. I think... Jean-Luc Picard, for a lot of people, is everyone's space dad. There is something sort of reassuring about Jean-Luc Picard. I'd be hard-pressed to argue with that, yeah. Because he's essentially, as a character, he is an incredibly moral man. Mm. He's coming from it from this place of um, hope and this place of sheer uh, old-school determinism. You know, this, this old-school grit where he's trying to make the universe a better place and through Starfleet and through the Federation, they're trying to stop war and uh, basically build a better future for everyone. And that's one of the great tenets of Star Trek, is that Star Trek has got this hope running through it. Almost to a, I suppose these days, I think some people looking back on it might find it a little bit funny because it's it, there's a naivety to it. That's I've always found part of the, uh, the charm and the wonder about it. This whole idea that, look, if we can get past this whole thing of uh, material wealth, and anger towards each other. We, we could just unite together and try and expand outwards beyond our tiny little rock. Then perhaps we could make not just the world a better place, but the universe a better place to have equal rights for all and all those lovely big uh, sort of 60s hippie concepts. That's yeah. what Jim Roddenberry was really trying to do. And to me, the next generation uh, did that the best. <coughs> and what Patrick Stewart did, and of course the writers as well, for Star Trek through the next generation, was they added something the original series didn't have which is Gravitas. All of a sudden, Star Trek went from being that silly show where you watched and go, okay, what's the alien of the week this week? To really big concepts. It talked about things like genocide and um, what it means to be human, whether there is a, a moral standard, whether what the difference between right and wrong and what that means to different cultures and how different cultures can have different views on it and the way they can interact. That's what uh, Patrick Stewart did for The Next Generation because he brought that Shakespearean level to it all of a sudden it wasn't a silly show about silly characters anymore it was about a real uh might and weight and power so anyway we're now in 2020 and they've decided to do a well not a reboot uh, basically an epilogue of this john luke picard as a character and i was nervous yeah really nervous going into understandable 
2020 has ruined a lot of things. And I'll be damned <laughs> if it's going to ruin everybody's space down. Okay. <laughs> so, so, okay, Picard starts out with, uh, he is now retired. Uh, he was an admiral, uh, has retired from Starfleet, and is living on a vineyard in France. A vineyard in France that for Next Generation fans this was actually shown a couple of times when his brother was looking after the, the family shop, so to speak. Patrick Stewart, as Jean Picard, has now retired there. He's living with his dog, uh, number one. Uh, <laughs> actually played by Patrick Stewart's real-life dog, Ginger, which I thought was quite nice. Breed is Ginger. Uh, Pitbull. Oh, nice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Lovely big um, Pitbull staffy kind of thing. Yeah, beautiful dog. Anyway, he's in semi-retirement and no one's quite... He does that nice thing of starting off where no one's quite sure exactly what led to the cause of his retirement. He's just living this life as a Frenchman, except with an incredibly English accent. That was always one of the conceits of the show. He's Jean-Luc Picard from France, and yet he's the most British-sounding man <laughs> with a Shakespearean Queen's English brogue that you've ever heard in your life. Uh, a news crew turn up to do a piece on Picard, and it is revealed that he quit Starfleet because the star near the Romulan home planet, Romulus, went supernova. And Patrick Stewart uh, led the charge, he compares it to Dunkirk, to get these refugees away from the Romulan star system, away from the supernova exploding. In the meantime, unfortunately, uh, several synthetics, i.e. androids like Commander Data, they were working on a different planetary base and they went rogue and blew up a shipyard, causing a huge amount of conflict. Starfleet pulled all their resources away from the Romulan exodus to uh, basically uh, to wipe out, well, not wipe out, but to um, focus on this synthetic problem and as a result, many Romulans were not able to be evacuated and were abandoned. Patrick Stewart, Jean-Luc Picard, decides that uh, this is uh, going against all the values of Starfleet that he stands for. And so basically uh, offered his resignation and was retired in disgrace, something of which he is still very, very angry about. He is then visited by a young woman. Now, this young woman is revealed earlier to be uh, in a flat with her boyfriend. They're just sitting around having dinner, having a nice day. All of a sudden, the door's kicked in. Her boyfriend is murdered, and she is attacked by a mysterious death squad. A bag is put over her head. She is about to be taken out of the room, and all of a sudden, something switches, something clicks inside of her, and she murders everybody in the room. Nice. Obviously, a very traumatic event for her. As she's lying on the floor contemplating all the horrendous shit that's just happened, there is one burning picture in the front of her mind, and it is a picture of Jean-Luc Picard. So she goes to seek him out. Uh, it is then revealed who she is. Something which I am not going to spoil for our listeners, <coughs> because there's very much a murder mystery element to this. Suffice to say, it is enough of a reveal that Jean-Luc Picard decides that he must do something to help this character. And again, I'm intentionally fudging some stuff here to blur the mystery a little bit. But he decides that he must go forth and solve this mystery. He goes to Starfleet. However, this is not the Starfleet we remember. This utopian, futuristic, perfect world where Starfleet is always on the moral side of right. They've slipped over the years. Starfleet's gone a bit rogue, gone a bit evil. Hence why Jean-Luc Picard has left. So he decides, fuck it, what I'll do is for one last mission, I will go recruit a ship, recruit a crew, and set forth into the galaxy to right the wrongs of the universe. Mm. That's as far as I'm going to go with setup for Picard. Uh, I was nervous about this, like I said. What I find really interesting is, for a start, this isn't doing Star Trek. Let's get that out of the way, plain and simple right now. Star Trek has got a very specific way that it's shot. 
a very specific feel to everything. Nerds basically have huge debates about what's Star Trek and what's not. But yeah. There's a certain feel to it that if you've watched enough of it, that feel is there. This doesn't have that. And so immediately you're thinking, okay, well, they fucked it. I think this doesn't have it because it's very, very deliberately not being Star Trek. This is something else. It's actually very dignified. I and mean, I think the biggest giveaway for that is the opening credits and the soundtrack which is this beautiful classical score that's actually pulling in bits of the next generation theme and this very sort of twisting uh, broken pieces of glass that penetrate through and flowers growing and all these pieces eventually come together to make the visage of Patrick Stewart as Jean-Luc Picard. You're thinking, wow, okay, this is interesting. It's basically doing art house Picard. And what I love about this show is that it knows exactly what it is, but it's treading so carefully. It is well, well aware that it's basically treading on people's dreams. You know, no one wants to see Patrick Stewart come back as Jean-Luc Picard and for it to be anything less than brilliant. Absolutely. It would be an absolute um, travesty for such a well-loved and well-defined character to be handled wrongly. Interestingly as well, they pulled Patrick Stewart into the writer's studio for this, and you can tell. Because Patrick Stewart does understand the character. This show actually manages to nail Jean-Luc Picard really, really nicely. The gravitas is still there. The little bits of silly humour, the fact that over the over the course of the next generation, he starts out being a real hard-ass space captain. And then through the events that the Enterprise goes through, he softens and warms. And as fans will know, the last scene of uh, the next generation is Patrick Stewart finally decides to join his senior officers for their weekly poker night. He always stayed away from it because he thought, you know, fraternising with the crew would be a bad idea. And famously, at the end of Star Trek Next Generation, he realises that perhaps softening is a good thing. Perhaps that makes him a better person. Perhaps it even makes him a better commander and a captain. That's in there. It's nice. It's really nicely done. It's got clever ideas. I mean, I'm saying that every week at the moment, but it's because I cherry-pick things I like. <laughs> it's got really, really nice ideas. It's <clears throat> treading very gently through the Star Trek mythos but it's determined to tell its own story. And this really is, uh, there's points of this that actually brought a bit of a lump to my throat. There's a particular part, I think it's at the end of episode three, when Picard finally gets hold of his new ship. And you've got that wonderful thing where, so everybody looks around to him to give the command. And he does the famous, you know, the two fingers forward, engage. Yeah. And then it plays the next generation theme, right? And you know me, I'm not a crier. And that's not some bit of masculinity thing. I just, I'm, I kind of wish I did cry more. Yeah. Because it's a good cathartic release. I, I don't cry. That moment actually did give me the lump in my throat. That a really, really iconic score and the engage and saw the little twinkle in his eye, almost the grin to camera kind of thing. Here we go off on our space adventures again. It's really nicely done. Really nicely done. It's so delicate. It's so careful of its subject matter. It's thought so deeply about how these characters should interact. And of course, you get some uh, familiar faces coming back throughout it as well. One that's been very well publicised, but I won't talk about it here. But there's a lot of people from the Star Trek mythos that turn up in it just for little bits and pieces. And all of them are handled really, really well. That's not to say it's entirely great. Uh, There are some really, really good performances in it. A couple of characters I have a little bit of a problem with. So we have uh, Alison Pill, as Agnes Girati, she is an uh, expert in synthetic life who joins Picard's crew. She, uh, most recently, you'll know her from Devs. She was a uh, Forrest's right-hand woman, the very uh, blank-faced, quite scary, psychopathic 
uh, right-hand woman to Forrest. Oh, yes, Mad. that uh, that lovely blonde woman. Yes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So in this, she's essentially playing <coughs> a bit of a comic foil. She's got some of the funny lines. Doing a fine job of it, although I think the funny lines for her are not quite as funny, perhaps, as the writers think they are. Not too bad, though, but there's been a couple where you're like, ah, that's a shame, because she's a good actress and you're just giving her funny bits. Yeah. Although there's, there's more of her revealed as the show goes on, of course. My biggest problem, though, and it's not so much with the, re- the performance, uh, Santiago Cabrera as Cristobal Chris Rios, the ship that Picard commissions, he is essentially the captain, although he's letting Picard run the ship. He's basically a gun for hire. And they've decided to strike him out basically as Logan slash Wolverine from the X-Men series. He's got his hair gelled back in sort of the tufts kind of thing, the wolf-like tufts. He's always got a cigar dangling from his lips. And he is very much one-note space captain, which I thought was a bit... So he's ridiculous, essentially. A little, yeah. <laughs> Although there is some, there is a nice part of this in the fact that the uh, holograms that he uses on the ship, because he's got no crew until Picard turns up and starts recruiting people, he uses holograms um, to function as the ship's doctor, the ship's pilot, that sort of thing. And they're all him, except they're him playing different parts. Mm. So he's got some nice range there. So he, you can tell he's a very good actor because when he gets given other characters within the same show, they're all completely different. And they're, so no problem at all with Santiago here. It's more the characterization of Chris Rios that is, it's so stereotypical, badass, brooding, space captain, cigar, you know, don't talk about my past kind of guy. It's, it's a it's a little flat, it's a little one note. Thankfully, there isn't too much of him. He gets he gets enough characters in the mix. That sounds like, I mean, you mentioned Logan, that sounds kind of like a high school play Logan. Yeah. As opposed to, you know, a character that can be taken in any way seriously. Again, a nice thing for him, it's obviously not the actor's fault because he's in it in other capacities and he's very, very good. I think just think that character's one note. Other than that, though, there actually isn't a lot to criticise here. And I really, I was so nervous about going into this. I really didn't want them to fuck up the character and actually they've got it nicely. What is a little bit sad, I mean, although it's the inevitability of life, is that Patrick Stewart, famously, is the man who doesn't age. I mean, he has. There's now the the crack in the voice when he's... Well, he's speaks. 18 now. Yeah, he, his voice is going a bit hoarse. Um, he's a little bit hunched these days. But then he is playing Picard at the end of his life as well, so that all makes sense. And, of course, no one can blame a man for aging, right? But Patrick Stewart's performance, I mean, it goes without saying, Patrick Stewart's performance as Jean-Luc Picard is pitch perfect, as you would expect. And it just dances lightly through this uh, this epilogue, this wonderful finishing piece to Picard's mythos. And I, I honestly don't think they could have judged it any better. It's a really... It, you know what it is? The one word to sew up, it's dignified. It's really dignified. That's nice, man. I like that. Yeah. I just think that's it's just a really sensitively done piece of work and I couldn't be happier for it. No, lovely timing because, uh, you know, it was only a couple of nights ago that we uh, we watched uh, Green Room, didn't we? Yeah. So Patrick Stewart, five years ago, at the age of 75. Definitely playing, not playing yeah. Jimmy Picard in Green Room. A, a 75-year-old English actor playing a psychopathic American neo-Nazi crime lord. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's, just, <laughs> it's quite nice that he went back to Jean-Luc, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> and to see it done so well just gladdens my heart. It's really nice to see it. And 2020 has been a year of... Um, of horrendous stuff. It, For the most part, yeah. It really, really has. And I believe, actually, this was first released um 2019, although the end of 2019. So I'm a bit behind with it. As I said, I very deliberately procrastinated on it. Uh, I, I needn't have worried. And that's the lovely thing, to actually find new Star Trek, except it's not Star Trek. It's doing something deeper mm. and more character-focused and just really, really well-written stuff. So thank you, guys. So that, what a wonderful thing to give this character 
the full legacy, the full gamut. That's a wonderful thing for Star Trek fans the world over. And even if you're not a Star Trek fan, even if you don't know anything about Star Trek, I think it explains itself well enough that you could just go straight into it. So you wouldn't have even have necessarily had to watch TNG? I don't think so, no. I think everyone's got at least a level of cultural awareness. Mm. Everyone's seen yeah. at least bits of Star Trek Next Generation. That's probably enough going into this. There's big concepts in it that are you know, Star Trek through and through, but I don't think they're so obtuse as that you couldn't figure it out through what they were doing, and I think they've judged that nicely as well. So while we're on this topic, actually, I thought, well, what better time to do it than this? Because actually maybe go back and start re-watching it. Uh, so Picard isn't Star Trek. But if you do want Star Trek, and you think I'm going to say Star Trek Discovery here, no, 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 no. The Orville. Oh, yes, yes. I'm familiar with this, but I've not. So this is Seth MacFarlane doing Star Trek. And when this was first announced, I thought, OK, so it's Seth MacFarlane doing a Star Trek spoof. That should probably be quite funny. It's not. It's not Seth MacFarlane doing a Star Trek spoof. It's Seth MacFarlane doing Star Trek outright. It's shot the same. The score is roughly the same. A lot of the characters are roughly the same. They've got an android called Isaac that's very obviously a commander data. They've got a, a big, scary-looking alien with a head prosthesis that's very obviously Commander Worf, except his name is Bortas. It's, it's, very, it's ripping off Star Trek so much, I'm very much surprised that Seth MacFarlane hasn't been sued. Yeah. Because it, it's flat out, straight down the middle. I thought they were going to do a spoof. It's not a spoof. It's actually... It's played tripe. Yeah, well, it, it's full of jokes, but the jokes are the least of it. It's like Star Trek with dick jokes, basically. And <laughs> weirdly, that works beautifully. <laughs> I, I thought it was just going to be joke after joke after joke, and okay, yeah, I'm a Star Trek fan, so I'm going to get most of those jokes, and brilliant, okay, I'm strapped in for the ride. What I wasn't expecting to find was actual Star Trek. As in, if you like Star Trek, the Orville has got all those things. You know, I was talking at the start of my Picard review about uh, the naivety and yeah. the hope, and the little bit of silliness, and the little bit of, come on, guys, if we just got it together, we could go out into the universe and make the world a better place. And every week, there's a different sci-fi concept that they go through, whether that's um, you know, the, the morality of gender, or um, genocide, or all those you know, huge, life-changing sci-fi concepts that sci-fi writers love to talk about. It, the Orville does it exactly, exactly the same way the Next Generation era Star Trek did it, to the point where it's not parody, it's not a rip-off. It's not pastiche. It's the real damn thing. And I, it absolutely blew me away because this means Seth MacFarlane, who stars in it, by the way, so this is a pet passion project of his. Seth MacFarlane really understands Star Trek. He understands what made it good. He understands where he kept coming back. All he's done is made it ever so slightly sillier and he's added the odd joke. And off the crew of the Orville go to explore the universe. So it's a genuinely good homage. Yeah, I, I wouldn't yeah. even say it's a homage. I, this is practically, it, it might as well be the same universe. It's just there's a few gags inserted in it as well. And I couldn't believe it. I absolutely couldn't believe it. I was sitting there going, what? what? This is, like, the shots are the same. The screen wipes and the um, the walk and talks down corridors. A, and all this kind a of stuff. spiritual reboot. Yeah. Is that, is that my, maybe more accurate? I couldn't be happier with the Orville. It's such a brilliant show. It's taking the Star Trek ethos and it's pushing it forward. And it's going, right, so you guys aren't doing it anymore. Because Star Trek Discovery is basically Star Trek gone grimdark. And that's sort of why I fell out with it. Because grimdark and Star Trek, to me, don't quite mix. It's that hope and optimism thing that was missing from Discovery. This idea that, you know, essentially, although we will have our problems, if we try hard enough, we're the good guys. 
we can go out and, and help other people and help other races and all join together and hold you know hold hands and sing kind of like the Star Trek USP. Yeah, exactly. Even whole... though, as you say, with the intellectual bent of the next generation, yeah, they still had that current. It yeah. never ceased. So yes, the next generation had the gravitas, and there were definitely some really dark plot lines in there. But it kept this forward momentum of it's about progress and moving forward. And what could the future be like if we really tried and got our fucking act together? The Orville just picks up where that's left off, as if nothing's happened in the meantime. And all it's done is add some very funny, by the way, jokes. And this is one of those shows as well. I had a rant at the critics last week, the professional critics, and I'll have a rant again, because when the Orville season one came out, the critics savaged it. And yet the audience response was fantastic. <clears throat> and I'm re-watching season one at the moment. I watched it when it first came out, and I'm re-watching it right now. And it's great. It's really, really good. And all the all the critics went, oh, well, it's just doing Star Trek. What do you mean it's just doing Star Trek? Star Trek was brilliant. How dare you? Yeah, yeah Star Trek was fucking brilliant. <laughs> and it's doing it just as well as Star Trek did it. So what's the fucking problem? Of course, season two came out. The critics had seen the audience response by then. And all the critics, they loved season two. Well, season two was fantastic. Yeah. And season two was... You, very- say, you say critics? Yeah. I think they need to hand that call back in, mate. Well... <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I think they saw the silly element of it and went, <clears throat> oh, so it's just a Star Trek. Let's jump on the bandwagon and not do our job properly. As we discussed yeah. last week as well, we now have to ask, every time you see a professional critics review, not us idiots sitting over here on the internet, every time you see a print review and things like that, think to yourself, how many episodes did they watch? Well, yes, exactly. Because as we yeah. discovered recently, a lot of the professional critics, they only watch two or three episodes and then they give a full review of the series like they've... You know, it absorbed the entire yeah, thing. they did it with C after only three episodes. Yeah. Even though there's fucking eight of them. Yeah. So, <laughs> so fuck the professional critics. Listen to Cinematalist instead. We're <laughs> always right. Absolutely. <laughs> okay, then let's finish off with some Star Trek trivia then. Oh, my chance to nerd out. Uh, <laughs> let's start off with this. Uh, Spock, obviously, played by Leonard Nimoy, uh, Vulcan second-in-command on the Enterprise. Spock was originally conceived as a red-skinned alien with a plate in the middle of his stomach. He didn't eat or drink, but fed upon any form of energy that stuck to his stomach plate. Wow. Isn't he a half Vulcan, half human? That is correct, yes. <laughs> yeah. No points to me. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Damn it. <laughs> I can recite you the NCC numbers of the Star Trek. I've got the technical manuals, man. I know you got me beat. <laughs> I was just taking the piss, you know me. <laughs> Uh, initially, NBC asked Gene Roddenberry to get rid of the guy with the pointy ears, partly because they were worried about his satanic exp- appearance. Oh, for f- he's more elven than satanic, if we're going to compare him to anything. <laughs> uh, during the first season of The Next Generation, Patrick Stewart had a sign over his dressing room door that read, Beware of unknown Shakespearean actor. <laughs> it's true though no one in America or in fact no one in the film and TV business knew about Patrick Stewart at this point he was Royal Shakespeare Company high level stuff and when he took on the role of Jean-Luc Picard all of his peers went what the fuck are you doing this is going to be a silly sci-fi show you're going to ruin your and he, he wouldn't have it he's like no, no 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 this is a good part and I'm going to go for it and I mean, he'd already been I mean, it was a little while before but he was in Excalibur John Borman's Excalibur which was a big fantasy hit around the world I mean, yeah they just didn't get the, the recognition no one knew who he was other than he was Shakespeare Pont, like Ponce English guy Shakespeare Ponce yeah, 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 yeah literally <laughs> and uh, how wrong they were absolutely uh, George Takai once urged Star Trek and Star Wars fans to end their rivalry 
to unite their hatred against the Twilight movies. Uh, I think I can get behind the man on that one. Good shout, George. Oh, my. <laughs> Gene Roddenberry didn't give Patrick Stewart much direction when it came to finding the character of Jean-Luc Picard, but he did push him in a very specific direction. After Stewart had been cast, Roddenberry gave him a set of Horatio Hornblower books and told him to start there. The Hornblower novels, written by C.S. Forster, centre around a British naval captain in the Napoleonic era, and it's easy to see the similarities between the two sodas, absolutely. I've read those books, and they are fantastic. Uh, born into poverty, Hornblower's adventures see him steadily climb the ranks of the British Royal Navy through consistent use of skill, daring, and achievement. He's also characterised as lonely, isolated, and extremely introspective, always keeping his admiring peers at arm's length due to his own self-doubt. Mm. Which is Jean-Luc Picard all over, really, isn't it? And that's where a lot of the gravitas comes from with The Next Generation. He plays it like an old-school naval captain. Absolutely, yeah. Speaking of that, I never actually... How do you pronounce the guy's name? Is, is it like a one Grufford, the guy who they actually had in the Hornblower television series? Mm-hmm. Was that series any good? Um, yeah. No. <laughs> I prefer the books, but Fair there enough. you go. As is often the case, to be honest. <laughs> Ex-US President Barack Obama is a Star Trek fan and gave the Vulcan salute for meeting Leonard Nimoy in 2008. Badass. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, he likes a whole uh, socialist utopia. Does Barack Obama. <laughs> Shame, you could have had the Enterprise by now, guys. <laughs> I'm very famous this. One of the celebrated aspects of Star Trek was its diversity and showcasing how people from different backgrounds can work together. This culminated in the 1968 episode Plato's Stepchildren, which had Uhura and Captain Kirk locked in a kiss, which is famously the first interracial kiss on American television. But, and this is the bit I didn't know, that wasn't the original plan. According to Nichelle Nichols, who played Uhura, uh, Spock was going to kiss Uhura, and it changed after Shatner read the script. Shatner demanded that it be changed so he could be a part of TV history. Two scenes were shot, one with the kiss and one without, but Nichols and Shatner intentionally botched all the takes of the non-kissing scene to ensure that it went on the air. So you go, TV's first interracial kiss was, of course, Star Trek. He stole Nimoy's thunder for himself. Yeah. No, that sounds like William Shatner all over. That's quintessential Shatner, isn't it? Fucking douche. The Shat. Yeah. We never want to watch it anymore more anyway, so. Well, here you go, a bit of uh, Shatner trivia here. Uh, Captain James Tiberius Kirk is, of course, considered to be William Shatner's most recognisable role. He starred as Kirk in 79 episodes of Star Trek and portrayed him in several films. Characters remain to cartoons, action figures, and other forms of merchandise, yet Shatner himself has never seen any Star Trek shows. Shatner has said that he doesn't watch any shows he's in, including Boston Legal. He said, I never watched any Star Trek. I've not seen any of the Star Trek movies. I don't watch myself. When I direct and have to look at film scenes of myself, I suck. Right. It's a good, uh, good, very encouraging uh, self-confidence. Yeah, that's, yeah. Nice <laughs> what, one, Bill. What a career he's made out of sucking. Huh? Well, yeah, exactly. Fuck's sake, man. You know, take a bit of pride. There's nothing wrong with it. <laughs> uh, going back to the next generation. According to Brent Spiner, his character's name, Data, was intended to be pronounced data and was more commonly used in American English at the time. But Sir Patrick Stewart used the British pronunciation data during the first (laughs) table read. Spiner also credits Stewart's pronunciation for making data the more commonly used pronunciation of data in American English vernacular. Before, when you were like going on, like slicing that, I just had this mental image of Patrick Stewart, you know, just going, no, no, you will pronounce it properly. Otherwise, I'm leaving. I had to give up an entire Yorkshire accent for this. <laughs> he did and all, you know, it's fair enough. It's yeah. a sacrifice. The motto of Starfleet Academy is ex astris scientia, 
which means from the stars, knowledge, and is based on the motto of the United States Navy, which is ex trident scientia, from the sea, knowledge. The crest of the ill-fated Apollo 13 mission was ex lunar scientia, from the moon, knowledge. Uh, according to Sir Patrick Stewart, the soundstage at Paramount Studios that permanently housed the bridge, 10 forward, the captain's ready room and observation lounge sets was the same soundstage where the whole of Rear Window was filmed. Holy shit. That's a great little bit for trivia. I wasn't aware of that. So the Enterprise lives <clears throat> sort of in, in a weird way, in a sort of a meta way, in the same universe as Rear Window. That's fucking awesome. Yeah. I love Rear Window as well, so... <laughs> I remember seeing uh, an interview with Sir Patrick Stewart where he said... Um, he was in a hotel a few years ago and he'd had a long day and he got back to his hotel and he ordered some, he was hungry, he ordered some room service and he turned on the TV and he was flicking through the channels and there was an episode of The Next Generation on mm. and he's sitting on the end of the bed and he's going, I don't, we did so many of these, I don't remember the plot on this one. He said, I was sitting there watching it and I thought it was quite good. I was really getting gripped by it. I was thinking, oh, we did really good work here. This is great. I get to watch it the same way the fans get to watch it. I don't know what's going to happen next. So he's sitting there enjoying himself and he's watching it and the um, doorbell to his room goes. He goes and opens the door and there's a bellhop there with his you know, his room service stuff and the cloche and everything. And uh, he says, where do you want this? So I'll just put it anywhere in the room. So the guy wheels in his trolley, removes the cloche, he's about to leave and then he turns and he looks at the TV and he sees Jean-Luc Picard. And then he looks at Patrick Stewart and then he looks at the TV again and then he looked back at him and Patrick Stewart suddenly went, oh no. Oh, no, 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 no. <laughs> and the guy just gave him a look and walked out the room. And he said, I sat there and I despaired because I thought he's going to go down to the kitchen. He's going to say, you know that Patrick Stewart that we've got staying with us? Egotistical bastard. <laughs> he's sitting up there watching fucking Star Trek. He just watches his own stuff. What a wanker. <laughs> anyway, yeah, that brings us to the end of our free podcast this week. As usual, thank you very much for listening. Uh, please do consider giving our Patreon a look. Uh, five bucks a month, four podcasts a month. Um, we're doing a big advertising campaign in the next couple of weeks as well, so hopefully you'll see our banners around somewhere. Uh, I've resisted the temptation to swear. Because, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we swear. The, the banners were a lot funnier when I saw them. Funny grow up a little bit. Well, no, basically all the places we advertise, we'll take them down. Ah, okay. So, so yeah. It's, it's pragmatism as opposed If you to, see yeah. the banner, just imagine us swearing on it. And, <laughs> yeah, please do actually. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like we don't do that enough. <laughs> but yeah, thank you very much for listening as usual. Off we go into premium territory. Uh, I'm going to review Code Eight this week. Uh, Liam's got China Lake. I China think. Lake, yeah. A little hidden gem that one. Uh, we've got some heist film discussion as well. We do our so bad it's good. Bit of film trivia quiz to end out. So yeah, basically, if you like our stuff, there's more <laughs> of it waiting for you at what we like to think is a very reasonable price. So do consider it if you like our stuff. Anything to add, me? No, just, yeah, thank you very much for listening, as, as always, guys. Hope all of you are still well. And, yeah, if you would like to check out our premium content, it would be very much appreciated, and we hope to see you there. Fantastic. Okay, thank you very much, and hope to see you on the next one. Bye.